0: Well, let's open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16, or an electronic device, or whatever you use. And today we're starting a brand new series. You've probably seen the advertisement. It's called Being Human. For six weeks, we're going to study the life in the Old Testament of King David, this towering figure of Scripture. Uh, Our team has been kind of putting this together for most of the summer. Uh, I'll be doing some. My son, Mike Gaggs, will do some and some others. So... Uh, We're just excited about what God might do. By way of introduction tonight, I want to talk about why are we studying David and why are we studying the Old Testament. I don't know how many of you know this, but there's kind of a movement underfoot even among believers to detach from the God of the Old Testament. Uh, There's people that struggle with the incongruity and the morality of the God of the Old Testament than the God of the New. Richard Dawkins, a prominent, prominent atheist, in his book, The God Delusion, said that the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloody, uh, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, an infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilicidal, megalomaniacal, sadomasochist, capriciously malevolent bully. He sounds really angry at somebody he thinks doesn't exist, doesn't he? And I understand Dawkins' point. He's not a believer. He doesn't follow God. He doesn't know the God that we know. But I also understand there are people that love God and serve God who struggle with the concept of some of the narratives we see in the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, uh, Samuel comes to Saul and tells him he can no longer be king in Israel. And the reason is he's disobeyed God. God told him to go and wipe out an entire people group called the Amalekites. God was very specific. God told him uh, to slaughter every man, every woman, every child, every nursing child, every sheep, every donkey, everything that lives and moves. And people look at that and they say, well, how does that square with Jesus who put little children on his lap and healed people? Other people say that we have the New Covenant, 29 books of the New Testament, where Jesus is fully revealed. Why do we have to go back and look, look at the law if we li- live under grace? So what happens generally with the Old Testament is we go back and we look at history and we try and pull out kind of redemptive stories that serve us. So when we come to David, we talk about slaying our giants or not judging a book by its cover or achieving against all the odds, and it's to miss the point. The Old Testament is beautiful. It's wonderful. And for this next 6 weeks we're going to look at this man David who had such a passion for God, the passion I think we all want to have. So before we look at David, I just want to give you four quick reasons why it's necessary for our growing helpful to study the Old Testament. The first reason is is that the Old Testament is the Bible Jesus read, quoted and loved. I don't know if you ever thought about it this way. When you read the Gospels, Jesus is obsessed with the Word of God. Almost anything he faces, he quotes Scripture. Remember Matthew chapter 4, right before he starts his ministry? He's gone 40 days and 40 nights with no bread, no water, and he's hungry. Uh, Luke brings that out uh, very vividly, and Satan comes along and says, Since you're the Son of God, you have all the power. Take these rocks and make them in the bread. You know Jesus' answer. He says, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God was in the 39 books of the Old Testament. Jesus said heaven and earth would pass away. God's words would never pass away. Jesus said not one jot or one tittle, not one dotting of an I or crossing of a T of the law would pass away. Listen, till all was fulfilled. It's how powerful the word of God is, Genesis to Revelation. Uh, Hannah was the mother of Samuel. Go back and read in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel her prophecy. It's remarkable. She speaks of the word of God, and then Samuel goes on to be trained by Eli to hear God's voice. And when he's being trained by Eli, Eli says something, and, and it's always stuck in the back of my mind. He says, never let God's words fall to the ground. Now, you and I kind of know what that means. It means, let's take the word of God to heart. But in the Hebrew, it means God's words literally can never fall to the ground. God's word is powerful. Uh, We would use the phrase, it never returns void. See, you and I speak idle words, right? We'll have conversations tonight that will fall to the ground. God's word is infinite. It goes on forever. That's why why when God said, let there be light, the universe just kept expanding. It never stopped. And Jesus said the word was alive, it was living and breathing. One of the things I'm so thankful to Jesus for is every time he quoted the Old Testament, he always quoted someone today who's controversial or the subject is controversial. So when he talked about his death, burial, and resurrection, he likened himself to Jonah the prophet. And I love that because the critics come along and say, well, that's a whale of a tale. A man gets swallowed by a fish, you've got to be kidding And so Jonah becomes a metaphor. He never existed except Jesus believed he existed. When talking about the end of the world in Matthew 24, he said, let the reader read Daniel and let him understand. Daniel's prophecy is so spot on concerning world history until the end of the age. Many higher critics come along and say, well, it was written by someone other than Daniel and it was backdated after they knew all the things that have happened. Jesus said Daniel was real and that everything he wrote was true. Jesus said in the beginning, God made them human beings, male and female. Human beings didn't evolve. It says God made them in the beginning. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, all scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. Why? So that the servant of God, you and me, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. When Paul wrote those words, there was no New Testament. Now, obviously, the New Testament was included, but all scripture that was God-breathed was, at that time, the Old Testament. It's the Bible Jesus read. Second reason why we study the Old Testament is that the character of God is unchanging. We need to understand this. And God said in Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord, I change not. Hebrews says of Jesus Christ, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God never changes. You and I change. The person you marry changes. I tell people when I marry them, this person you're marrying will not be the same person in five years, ten years, fifteen years. God is. It's been the same for all of creation. I had an uncle when I became a Christian who was kind of sarcastic, and I would preach to him, and he said, don't preach to me, I read the Bible. In the Old Testament, God's killing, and then... Turn the cheek in the new testament almost like there's two different gods the god of the old testament is harsh and unloving and judgmental and then jesus puts little kids on his lap michael card who was a pro- prolific songwriter and author spent 20 years writing what he thought was the quintessential book he wanted to get out in his lifetime and it's called chesed or as the hebrews would say chesed it's the loving kindness, the mercy of God. It's very hard to transcribe. It comes from the Old Testament. We would say something like shalom or love. And there's a sprinkling of verses in the Old Testament that bear this out. In Psalm 103, verse 8, it says, the Lord is merciful and gracious. Listen, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. This is the God of the Old Testament. Joel 2.13 says, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Why? He's gracious He's merciful, slow to anger, great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Jonah, who was commissioned to go to the Ninevites to preach. We sang about revival today. It was the greatest revival in history. He didn't want to go. And he didn't want to go so bad that he preached this lousy sermon that in 40 days, Nineveh would be judged. He had like no heart into the matter. And a great revival breaks out. You know why he didn't want to go? He knew the character of God. He said, oh Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? This is why I fled to Tarshish. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God. Here we go again. Slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents from doing harm. How many times have you sat around, talked to someone, Ask them their testimony, and the answer is, I should have been dead by now. Without Jesus, I should have been dead. Should have overdosed, should have gotten in a car accident. You think of the mercy of God. You think of the near misses of life, the stupid things we have done, and yet God's mercy is upon us. You think of the people who, like maybe Richard Dawkins, who spit in the face of God, who might live to 90 years old. Who enjoys all the freedoms that you and I do. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Naaman said the, lowest, the Lord is slow to anger, great in power, and will not acquit the righteous. So we see that God is a God worthy to be repraised. That his character is stellar. Uh, Pastor Bob, what about First Samuel chapter 15? What about God's command to slay the Amalekites? Well, you have to understand the culture to which the Bible was written. It's very hard to stand on this precipice of Western society and look back and see what was going on in that time. God raised up Israel. They were to be a light unto the other nations. They were a nation under God. They were a nation of laws. The other nations were wicked and vile. You read about the Egyptians, the Ninevites, um, the Amalekites, and all the things that they had done. And so many times, think about this, God would wait 400 years. 400 years. Uh, The only way we can look at it today is maybe North Korea or some of these places where despots rule. Can you imagine 400 years of letting that go on? But because God's a God of justice, when God says, this is the time for judgment, God says, do not spare the king, don't spare children, just wipe everyone out. And the reason God does this is because God is just. God said he would raise up a king after his own heart. God's justice is final, man's justice is different. Saul spared Agag, he spared the best of the sheep, the best of the uh, oxen, the fatlings, and the lambs. Do you know why? Because that was the way of the world because you would pillage another nation, you would set up a puppet king, and you would rule them for all time. It was called imperialism. It still goes on in our day. And God said that's an abuse of power, and that's an abuse of nations. Third reason we study the Old Testament is that we actually see Jesus more clearly. I know this might be hard to understand. I know Hebrew says that God spoke to the prophets to the fathers through the prophets in the last days and in the last times now he speaks to his son. I, I get all that. But I think if you just read the New Testament, you would have maybe an incomplete picture of Jesus Christ because you'd have a house with no foundation. Isaiah said in the volume of the book, it is written of me. Jesus quoted that in the New Testament. Jesus said to the religious leaders, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. They actually testify of me. Remember the two on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24? Jesus, post-resurrection, comes up to them, and these guys are sad, and they say to Jesus, are you the only one that doesn't know what has happened? And they crucified Jesus. Jesus said, "Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, and all the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and enter in the glory? And beginning at Moses, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Through all of the prophets, it said he expounded. That means he took them verse by verse through the scriptures, the Old Testament, and showed who he was. It's the greatest Bible study ever given. It was the foundation of who Jesus was. He took them to Genesis 22, where the angel says, Abraham, don't sacrifice your, your son, and God provided a ram in the thicket. He took them to Numbers with the serpent on the pole. He took them to the furnace where Daniel's friends were there, but there was one like unto the Son of Man. See, when we approach the Bible, sometimes we approach the Bible like it's all about us. Like, I'm going to read David's story so I can pick up a few principles, I can slay giants in my life, I can overcome great odds, you know, uh, and, and I'll be a better human being. There are obviously things we can learn and apply. But the Old Testament is deeper than that. The Bible's deeper than that. The Old Testament is a revelation of Jesus. The study of the tabernacle, the study of Joseph, the study of David will all lead us to a greater understanding of who Jesus was and who he is. And the final reason why we study the Old Testament is it teaches us about intimacy with God in narrative form. David, we're going to discover, was the man after God's own heart. He was a man who lived in wild abandon to God. David was a sinner like you and me. David had his failings. David committed murder, adultery. He had his ups and downs. He was jealous. He was ambitious. He was strong. He was passionate. But at the end of the day, this man and this man only was classified by God as a man after my own heart. Ellen Davis, who teaches New Testament at Duke, said the Old Testament over and over again brings us the good news that God is involved with us, and he's involved with us inextricably. He's the God who made Adam and Eve clothes. He's the God who spoke to Rahab, a prostitute. He's the God all the way through the Old Testament who gets involved with us, involved with our messiness. And he gets involved with David. And David reveals to us what a heart of wild abandon looks like as we serve God. The question is, who is this man? Who is this man who had a heart after God? Well, I started reading and rereading all the books I have on David somewhere back in May. And whenever I read about David, I get depressed. Because the guy is like a renaissance man. You know what a renaissance man is? That's like somebody who's good at three or four things. Yeah, I just want to be good at one thing. He's good at, like, everything. Uh, Just a side note, women love guys like this. Guys despise guys like this, right? So when you think of David, you think, well, what's one of David's just, like, great gifts? Well, he's a warrior, right? So back in that time, they didn't have sports like we had. There's no LeBron James or Tiger Woods. So David's kind of the man when it comes to being a warrior. He goes out to battle. Now you and I know he defeats Goliath. It's the greatest upset in history. We'll talk about it next time. But we forget that David was valiant on the battlefield. How do we know? Because they had a song everybody sung in Israel. You know how it went? That Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands. So take the greatest athlete today, and he was ten times better than that person. Ten times better than LeBron, ten times better than Tiger Woods. Not only was David a warrior, he was a great statesman, he was a king. He possessed wisdom and skill in politics, he took Israel to her golden age. On top of all that, he was the sweet psalmist of Israel. This warrior would sit down with a pen and write some of the greatest words we've ever heard. He would write the Prayer Book of Israel, one of the most outstanding pieces of literature we call the Psalms. Add to that, the Bible says he was skilled in music. Every time Saul was depressed or tortured by demons, they would bring in David to play. He was like a human Prozac for Saul. And if that's not good enough, he had to be good looking. He just had to be good looking. 1 Samuel 16, 18 said he had skill in playing. He was a mighty man of valor, a man of war. He was a great orator, prudent in speech, and he was a handsome person. But none of that mattered because this is what defined David, and the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. And this is what David makes David the man after God's own heart. Like I said, he was jealous, he was ambitious, he was a lousy dad, he had eight wives. Like you and me, he was human to the core. David never turned away from God to idols. And what amazes me for the Old Testament is David never witnessed a miracle. Some people think the Old Testament's filled with miracles. It's not. They seem to come in bunches. Today, people think that to serve God, you have to feel God. Now, I'm all in the feeling God. I'm all into, like, this word, the presence of God, Right? Which, by the way, in the Old Testament, there is no such thing as the presence of God. That word means to see the face of God. David never saw a miracle. He never had holy goosebumps. He never saw anybody healed. But he saw something everyone here longs for, to see the face of God. The Lord was with David. And he becomes the central figure, theologians tell us in all of Scripture. Abraham, the father of all who believe, has 14 chapters in the Old Testament. Elijah, who presided over so many miracles, 10 chapters. David, a whopping 66 chapters. He's mentioned 600 times in the Old Testament, 60 times in the New Testament. He's the last human being mentioned in Scripture. In Revelation twenty-two sixteen, Jesus said, I have set my angel to testify to you these things to the churches. And Jesus said, I am the root and the offspring of David. How many times did Jesus characterize himself as the son of David, the bright and the morning star? To this day, when you go to the land of Israel, the flag that flies over it is the star of David. Uh, Whenever we go to Israel, I'll walk people down to where all the dignitaries, the Jewish dignitaries, stay. It's called the King David Hotel. Now, David's son Solomon was a pretty good king also, the wisest man that ever lived. You know, there's not even a falafel shack named after Solomon. You can't find one thing in Israel named after Solomon. Almost everything's named after David. And the reason is, he's the man after God's own heart. David, when you sum it up, is human. He's someone we can relate to. We follow Jesus, but he was all of God and all of man. We follow Jesus, but in the book of Revelation, he has eyes like a flame of fire, feet like burnished brass. David is someone we can relate to. David had a capacity for God. So what does it mean to be human? I've been asking a lot of people this question. The number one answer is to be alive. But that can't be true because plants are alive, animals are alive, whales are alive, zebras are alive. Even the angels are living beings. So to be human has to be something more. So I asked several friends the question. I asked them to write their thoughts down. These are great thinkers and writers. And I kind of compiled this. To be human means to desire to be a few inches taller and a few pounds lighter. To be human means eating a hot dog on a summer night even though you know what's in it. Being human is leaning over the rails of a crib at night looking at the freckles on your child's face. To be human is to stand at gravesites and to listen to wedding vows. It means loving and losing. It means the pain of leading and following. To be human is to be compassionate, to fight for the victim, to want justice for the oppressor. Being human is imagining a better world, a different world. Being human involves sinning and pain Making mistakes, having regrets, feeling lonely, hopeless, and futile about your future. But the ultimate of humanness is to connect with God. To never connect with God is to never know what it means to be human or to be alive. To never feel the power of God. In your heart, to never read a scripture and have it come alive, to never see God in another person is to miss out on everything we were put on this planet for. This is where David's going to take us. In the coming weeks, we're going to see what it's like to be human and to walk with God. We're going to see what it's like to have bigger hearts for God, to have bold hearts to have hearts of friends, to have hearts that are vulnerable, to have jealous hearts, passionate hearts. We're gonna see in David a man who's angry, devious, generous, he sings and dances before God. He lives in wild abandon. Remember the time where he was dancing before God and his wife comes out and says, you can't do that, right? And he said, well, I'll even do it in a way you wouldn't believe. I heard one commentator say, when's the last time you acted that way for anything God had done in your life? When is the last time you danced? When is the last time you clapped, not in a service, but in life? When's the last time you ran around the block? When's the last time your heart was so big for God, all you could do is break out in song or dancing or joy? For all that David would do, he would burst out in these times of praise. And he writes these psalms. Some of them are psalms of joy. Some of them are psalms of lamentation. Some of them are cursing psalms. We'll talk about some of those. God's not afraid of David's heart. He's not afraid of David's anger. He's not afraid of David's sass. He's not afraid of David's questions. The story of David begins in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Look at verse 1. Said Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. For I have provided myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears, then he will kill me. But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I named to you. Samuel did what the Lord said, and he went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at him and said, You come peaceably. He said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to sacrifice. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely... The Lord is anointed before him. He was the oldest. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. Here's why. The Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? He said, there remains yet the youngest. He doesn't even name David by name. And there he is, keeping the sheep, the lowest job. Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent, and he brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, Samuel, anoint him, for this is the one. And Samuel took the horn of oil, anointing him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon that day, upon David. And Samuel went, and he rose, and he went to Ramah. When we look at David's beginning here, there's a few things we need to draw out. And the first one is this, where God said, I will provide myself a king, and it'll be a man after my own heart. And he says that God doesn't look at the outward, he doesn't see the way man sees, but he looks inside a man. Now you look at our culture today, we're no different from the people back then. We judge people outwardly, we judge people by appearance, I feel sorry for kids today. Everything's about scholarships. Everything's about the outward. Everything's about achievement. And the one thing we have to understand, we already said David's an extraordinary man. Talent and gifting is from God. It's part of the doctrine of creation. God made us differently. God made us with abundance of talent. We all have things that we do. We all fit in. Paul talked in the New Testament about how everyone has a gift. But the Bible says charm is deceitful, And beauty is vain. Everything that's outward will fade away. But it's a woman whose heart is for the Lord that will be praised. It's a person of the inward heart. Now, we can't get sidetracked here and think that the church should become mediocre, that the only people that God uses are people that are kind of uneducated and untalented. That's not true. The history of Western civilization, the church has given us Galileo, Newton, Michelangelo, the great composers and preachers. Whenever those people come along who are highly gifted, we applaud them for using their gifts. But we also understand that in God's kingdom, where he's turning things upside down, God uses everyone. No one's worthless. Everyone has a place. I was on a mission trip one time with a man who had built many things around this property, had been on many mission trips with us, us, but his wife had joined us for this trip. And on one of these days, the teams all split out and I went to the orphan's home. And while we're in the orphan's home, uh, his wife had a little baby on her lap. And uh, she had this big smile and I said, wow, you really do well with kids. And you, she goes, I want to take this baby home. I said, yeah, we all do. She goes, no, I really do. She said, because I was an orphan. And I was raised by nuns. And when I was 17, my husband came and married me and took me to the States, and now look at the life I have. And I thought to myself, I want to see that nun in heaven. I want to see these people that never get named, never get articles written about them, never write books, but have used their talents and their giftings for God. God's showing through David that he's upending the order of things and the way things are. We see this in God choosing David, where in that culture you would always choose the firstborn. We hear this word privilege a lot today, right? People are born with privilege. Well, back in that day, if you were born as the firstborn, you had all the privilege, all the property, all the wealth, all the inheritance were to the firstborn. You had an unfair advantage in life. And we see God stepping into the human story and reversing all this. It's going to be Isaac, not Ishmael. It's going to be Jacob, not Esau. Joseph, not the ten sons of Jacob. It's going to be David, not Jesse. God begins to speak in the culture. God begins to change the order of things. And then finally and lastly, Samuel anoints David. He takes a horn of oil and he pours it on his head and it goes down his face. I don't think he has a beard yet. He's a ruddy teenager and he is now the king in Israel. The problem is there's another king, Saul, who wants all the glory and all the power and all the adulation for himself. Saul can't stand that song, he slayed his thousands, David his 10 thousands. Do you ever wonder why they couldn't be the 11,000 club, right? Because Saul was envious and he was prideful and he was calculating and his heart was hard. The word anointed in Hebrew means Messiah. The Greek word that we're familiar with is Christ. David prefigures Christ. That's why Jesus said he was the son of David. But to be anointed doesn't mean you're king. You go to Camp David, you ride in limousines, you get all the perks. We find out in Scripture through the life of David, to be anointed means to be misunderstood. He's going to slay Goliath, and instead of sitting in the palace, he's going to go back and tend sheep. He's going to run from Saul. It's going to be years before he ever will do what God's called him to do. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like the promises of God for everybody but you? And you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting. To be anointed means to be rejected. Time and time again, David rejected, even by his mighty men, First Samuel 24. And to be anointed means that you have to lead out of your suffering. And you see what the Bible's doing is that when we read the story of David, it's not David's story impacting our story. It's not about you defeating giants. It's not about you slaying the enemy and overcoming great odds. David is bringing us to Jesus and Jesus brings us to God because Jesus was misunderstood. How could anyone come from Nazareth, born in Bethlehem? He eats with sinners and tax collectors. He's illegitimate. Despised and rejected and put on a cross. David leads us to Jesus, and Jesus comes to us. And here's the beautiful thing. We are now God's anointing. The Bible says you have an anointing from God. I know you don't think you do. I know when you look in the mirror, it doesn't look that way. The Bible says you have the Holy Spirit without measure. You have something David never understood. The Spirit would come upon him. It would leave and go. We have it without measure. We've been forgiven. We live in Romans 8 reality. God will never forsake us, never leave us. We have this 24-7 relationship with God, where now we can live in wild abandon, passionate lives for God. In the next five weeks, we're going to build bigger hearts for God. We're going to let God inspect our hearts. We're going to cry out to God for bold hearts, for passionate hearts, especially during this time of COVID where everybody just seems to be in neutral. God, would you once again build this heart? When I got saved at 21 years old, I knew life would never be the same. My greatest prayer was, God, never give me a calculating heart. Never give me a heart for money. Never give me a heart for ambition, God. Never give me a heart for anything other than you in this life. One of the few verses I know was, seek first the kingdom of God, and God would add all these other things. Jesus said, the Father knows what you need before you even ask. And that's gonna be my prayer again. We, we sang a song today, breathe on us, holy fire. God, give us those passionate hearts that are sold out for you in all that we do. Because souls are gonna come and go. And the people around us are gonna do what they do. And all that outward stuff, it all ends. I got to go out to Convoy of Hope Conference and uh, play at Pebble Beach. Did not pay for it, neither did the church. It's underwritten by a corporation. Not, not Convoy of Hope's money, underwritten by a rich owner of a corporation. And the caddy at every hole would tell us, there's Charles Schwab's house. $35 million, and then he gutted it and put 35 more million in. And then this is the owner of the Golden State Warriors, 70 million, and and by the way, see that shack over there? That's 12 million, somebody's gonna buy that and gut it. And every time this caddy told me one of these stories, I said, are they gonna take it with them? (laughs) Are they gonna take it with them? And I looked at those homes and I thought, what a pity, what a shame. You know how fast time goes. And somebody else is gonna get it. And that's the way of the world. David wanted to build a house for God. He wanted to build people for God. He wanted to build a nation for God. And he had a heart after God. God, would you give us those hearts as we sit on this lawn? God, would you give us hearts of wild abandon, Hearts that are bold and passionate. God, we pray that you would be involved in our lives, in our messiness, in our decisions, in our failings. I pray, Lord, as we go through these six weeks, that we would find something about us, but mostly something about you that we've never discovered before. God, I don't believe you're finished with any of us as long as we're breathing. God, I believe you can use every one of us God, we thank you for David. We thank you for this picture of Jesus, this picture of grace, this picture of being human and connected with you, God. God, we thank you for the apple of your eye and that you love us and you're not ashamed to call us your brethren. And we pray in Jesus' name.